0: This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 18. Today, we are going to discuss and analyze... 1998 blockbuster swashbuckler film, The Mask of Zorro, starring Antonio Banderas and Anthony Hopkins. I'll be your host today. My name is Harry. I will be your co-host. My name is Jeff. And today we have our special guest star from the Bay Area in the States returning once again, Mr. Andrew Till. How are you doing today, sir? I am very well, thank you. Just before we continue, I must you know, warn everybody that Andrew and myself are watching the St. Louis Blues and the Chicago Blackhawks as we record this podcast. So if we react in any strange manner... You'll know why. (laughs) Except for Jeff,
1: who does not want to be Wait, you guys actually actually have the game on. Yeah, we have the game. no. I promise at least 95% that neither one of the two games are on the peripheral TV that is directly in front of me on right now. I I can't. No. I'm definitely 95% sure that I'm not watching it. Jeff, it's called multitasking, and we're Canadian. Gotcha. We're not sure, about <laughs>
2: can't you. wait to review Star Wars tonight. <laughs> well, I mean, if I had a TV in here, then I, I guess I probably could be watching it too. But that's okay. It's not a movie that requires a lot of brain power.
0: Anyways, gentlemen. So, Jeff, before we start this episode, I did when I did announce this movie last time when we finished our last podcast. You had about a good uh, two minute laugh. Mm. Care to <laughs> elaborate?
2: <laughs> I was just thinking of Antonio Banderas's face. In my brain there. And it just set me it set me on. I mean, I remember the movie as being thoroughly ridiculous. And part of the laughter was anticipation as well. I hadn't seen it in a number of years. And I thought, yep, that'd be a, a hell of a lot of fun to pick apart for better or for worse. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's good. So can you just elaborate or give a little more details on your memories? How, you've seen it only the one time when it when it aired in theaters? I believe so. I think I only saw it the one time when it aired in theaters. Yeah, I remember fairly well the lead-up to this. I mean, the, this came out in uh, July of 98, so uh, in the height of summer blockbuster season. So there was a lot of hype surrounding this film. Antonio Banderas was a fairly bankable star at the time. Anthony Hopkins, still a, a big name. I don't think Catherine Zeta-Jones had been in too much to this point, if much of anything. But yeah, Antonio was a big star, and there was a couple of things. I mean, the trailers for this movie were uh, the trailers for this movie were absolutely fantastic. They were uh, they had the exact right tone—that swashbuckling action. I uh, love the trailers for this, and you know, directed by Martin Campbell, who had at that point done GoldenEye a few years earlier, which, uh, you know, one of my favorite Bond films. So there was so much to look forward to here. And I, you know, I I really remember being extremely excited for this, for this movie to come out. Andrew, how about yourself? Yeah, it's a movie that I hadn't watched in a really long time.
1: And like when I lived in Calgary, it was one of the the few movies we had on VHS. But I do remember watching it a number of times. Certainly I watched it when it came out in theaters, but then I watched it afterwards. And it was one of my mom's favorite movies. I was looking forward to being able to reevaluate the movie after about 10 years of not watching it. So when you guys announced it on the podcast, I was certainly excited to to go back and see it again. Definitely a 90s movie. I definitely want to say that right up front. It is not like the action movies of today, but it was definitely a good revisit. So I look forward to talking about it tonight.
0: That's good. So hold on to that point there or that perspective, Andrew, and bring that full circle later in the movies you talk about anything that relates to how you think this is a 90s movie obviously beside the fact that it was released in the 90s it's a good point bring that up all right so gentlemen anyone want to say anything or should i get into the plots and offices here
2: why don't you tell us what your uh memories were of the of the film or in the lead-up to this so like yourself i we worked in that uh, movie theater. I
0: may have watched this in a screening. I believe that's when we saw this.
2: That could be. It was a screening.
0: And I remember I, I enjoyed it thoroughly upon release. I did buy this on DVD. And then uh, as a gift, somebody gave this to me on Blu-ray a number of years later. So I have two copies of this, uh, one of which I lent you, Jeff. Yeah, I've seen this maybe a couple of times since I owned it. And I I don't want to give away too much of of my thoughts, but it's not a deep movie, but it's a very, it, it fits into a specific genre. And I guess we can talk about that later as we progress. Sound good? Right on. All right, let's get into this. The Mask of Zorro. It is 1821, and we are dropped into the era of the Mexican War of Independence. Zorro, whose real name is Diego de la Vega, is a protector of the Mexican peasants for the people of Las Californias against the cruelty of the Spanish. Don Rafael Montero, the governor of California, is tired of Zorro's antics, and he has rounded up random people to be executed in the hopes to lure Zorro into a trap. However, Zorro manages to free the peasants and flee, but not before batflecking Montero with three cuts to the neck, resembling a Z. Before leaving the scene, Zorro gives his thanks to two young boys, the Marietta brothers. Joaquin and Alejandro, as they have distracted some soldiers before they could fatally shoot Zorro. Zorro gives Joaquin his Studio 54 necklace and whisks away on his steed tornado. Back at the lair of the fox, we see Zorro enter his luxurious mansion and meet his wife Esperanza and daughter Helena. However, they find themselves not alone, as Montero and his army of soldiers are waiting for him. You see, Delma Vega probably forgot to wear his glasses, so it was easy for Montero to guess he was Zorro. De La Vega and Montero fight, but in the process, Esperanza sacrifices her life to save De La Vega. Montero, who seems to have also have had true feelings for Esperanza, wants De La Vega to now suffer in prison for life and takes it upon himself to raise Helena as his own daughter. The legend of Zorro is dead. Fast forward 20 years later, the Spaniards are still in partial control of California, and Santa Ana is waging wars between the Spaniards and the United States for control of the region. Montero has returned after 20 years and is up to no good. His first task, upon his return, is to see if De La Vega is still alive, rotting in prison. Upon his visit, he believes De La Vega to be dead, but De La Vega is in fact alive, but he seems to be a defeated, withered old man with no purpose. But upon seeing his enemy again, De La Vega is reinvigorated and escapes prison with one goal, to kill Montero. He intends to kill him during a speech in front of the peasants, but he sees Helena, now grown into a woman, and decides to bide his time. He needs a new plan, and he needs help. In the meantime, we catch up with the Moretti brothers, grown up, but now wanted criminals. They are thieves and con artists, and after what seems to be their latest successful con, they are ambushed by the Spanish army, led by Captain Love. Romance does not ensue, and Captain Love shoots Joaquin in the leg, and Alejandro escapes. Joaquin is left alone to face the army, but instead of letting them take him alive or execute him, he instead shoots himself. We are then introduced to Captain Love's fetish, his love for Futurama, as he dismembers and takes Joaquin's head with him as a trophy. Alejandro (laughs) returns later to mourn his brother, and he picks up the necklace his brother wore. Alejandro continues his mourning at a bar, and De La Vega notices the necklace and realizes who he is. De La Vega prevents Alejandro from confronting Captain Love immediately, and instead reveals to him that when the pupil is ready, the master will appear. We are then deprived of the line from the trailer, as Alejandro should have said, Zorro? Alejandro starts his training. From advanced sword fighting to what seems like kindergarten-level gymnastics, De La Vega is going to make Alejandro fly now. Is Alejandro ready to take the mantle of Zorro? De La Vega doesn't think so. Not yet. This is a dangerous time for him, when he will be tempted by the dark side of the fox. So Alejandro decides to test himself. He decides to infiltrate the Spanish army to steal a horse, one that would be a fitting replacement for the original tornado. After some clever swordplay and fisticuffs, Alejandro and his new steed escape. Did he pass his first test? No. De La Vega says Zorro was a servant of the people, not a thief. He has a new plan, one that will hopefully reunite De La Vega with his daughter. De la Vega and Alejandro now pose as visiting royal Spaniards and invite themselves to a party that Montero is throwing. There, Alejandro gets close to and becomes attracted to Helena, and De la Vega, posing as Alejandro's servant, investigates what Montero is doing back in California. De la Vega is unable to fully determine what Montero was up to before he is inadvertently chased away. However, Alejandro, still posing as Spanish royalty, has impressed Montero, and he accompanies Montero and his other Spanish cronies to a gold mine. Montero is using Mexican peasants as slaves to excavate tunnels and is stealing Santa Ana's own gold, with the purpose of using that gold to buy California from Santa Ana and preventing independence as a free state. Alejandro is none too pleased and barely contains his rage as a former con artist friend of his is killed for fun in front of him. Montero thinks nothing of it, but the love detector is going off for the captain. Since Alejandro was unable to determine the exact location of the mine, they must find more information. But this looks like a job for Zora? That night, Alejandro, now as returns to Montero's fortress, he retrieves the map to the mine and runs into Captain Love, Montero and his men. Zoro fends them off and escapes, but not before carving up Helena's dress to fall to the ground for some hopeful R-rated hijinks, but it did not come to pass. Many Bothans would have died for that information. Alejandro informs De La Vega of Montero's plans, and they will both tempt their fates. De La Vega approaches Helena, revealing his true self, but not before Montero intervenes and imprisons him. But Helena now knows the truth and frees her true father, and they join Alejandro at the mine to stop Montero and free the slaves. It's Alejandro versus Captain Love, De La Vega versus Montero, and Helena to free the slaves. Nobody's mother is named Martha here, so the fighting logically ensues. After lots of swordplay and action, the Love Doctor and Montero are no more. In a thousand years, they may be worth something, and the peasants are freed thanks to the legends of Zorro. But where there is tragedy as Delavega Vega dies from his wounds... There is destiny as the torch of adventure has been passed and the circle is now complete. Alejandro is Zorro and is porking his mentor's child. Justice is served. The end. So, gentlemen, after that long-winded synopsis, uh, what are your first thoughts here? Jeff how about you start with with yourself here?
2: Well no I mean it's it certainly comes across as a you know swashbuckling adventure I think that uh, you know listening to that all the all the pieces ought to be here for a you know a good fun action packed adventure I mean you know, you jokingly made references to Star Wars and Indiana Jones, uh, and I think that uh, that's kind of appropriate. I think in a in a roundabout way, this film sort of fits in the same type of movie, or at least wants to fit into the same type of movie that those films occupy. So, you know, just from, from listening to that, yeah, I want to buckle in and get my sword out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I hope it's a rapier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a rapier, baby, <laughs> double-edged. <laughs>
1: Andrew, how about yourself? No, it's it certainly the the way you described it, it. Certainly conveys the the excitement of the movie and and the fun of the movie and. In a way, like you guys talk about Indiana Jones and Star Wars, but it's a lot in a way like Pirates of the Caribbean. I wish I had known more about the history of Zorro before watching this movie. But even just the synopsis that you provided, it's a, it's a movie that just hearing that I would want to see because it just sounds like a fun time.
0: Actually, Andrew, I did wanted to specifically ask you a question. You know, since you do live in California now, traitor. Okay. Based on what you've seen in this movie, I mean obviously movies such as this are gonna be kind of a loosely based around historical events that were happening oh, in a no. certain period of time. Was there any yeah. accuracies or inaccuracies? I mean, outside the fact that Zorro does not exist, but dealing with the Spanish Army, Santa Ana, the US the War of Independence. How familiar are you with that? Can you shed any information on there or are you still just true
1: blood Canadian and you know nothing of the States? <laughs> <laughs> in, in terms of the Mexican War of Independence, I know absolutely nothing. And that's why it's a little disappointing for me, like having watched this after living in California for a little under 10 years. I'm like, oh, fudge, I don't really know anything about how this state became a state. And it actually made me want to learn more about it. I'm not sure if it's necessarily the most historically accurate movie, but just it was an important time in uh, American history. So, as much as I'd love to be able to speak to that, unless it's like how the Oakland Seals came to the Bay Area and how they departed. Uh, I don't think I can necessarily
2: speak to it. <laughs> you didn't run to your local library, Andrew, as soon as you were done watching this historical masterpiece? I've heard of these libraries, but I... Nope, unfortunately,
1: I didn't. I definitely want to learn more about it. Um, and It just reiterates the fact that if you live in a place, maybe you should know a little bit about it, so... Yeah, ask me in a year. Okay. And I'll probably say the same thing. That's a promise. Okay.
0: (laughs) Done. Okay, so how about I hit you guys with some quick trivia here? So obviously this movie, released in nineteen ninety eight, July seventeenth, it was released by TriStar and Amblin Entertainment. It had a very large budget of actually ninety-five million dollars. It's quite large for, I think it shows too. We can talk about it. I mean, a lot of money seemed really poured into this movie, and it, I think this movie looked fantastic, but we can talk about that as we go through. So, domestically, it made 95 million, and its worldwide tally back in 98 was just over a quarter of a billion. Not bad, considering, you know, theaters take out a good chunk of that money, but there's some marketing there, so it's a small profit that was made there, but obviously you consider merchandising and home video sales, they made a lot more money. This movie did receive two Oscar nominations, sound and sound editing, and this is a strange fact. Maybe this lines up from what you're saying, Jeff. Banderas was nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance, but in the um, category (laughs) comedy or musical. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, like the Martian, yeah.
0: I guess that's still a, a thing for today. It's like I don't understand how this is a comedy or a musical.
2: So, <laughs> when you watch the Golden Globes, I mean, it, they're pretty loose with when they kind of divide the genre. But you know, it doesn't. You know, this, this clearly doesn't fall into the drama genre, so they they put it into the music. The, you know, the sort of the classic genre. Uh, Anything that's not a drama is a comedy or a musical, and I think it would fit. You know, not as a comedy as we see it today but you know historically speaking it would probably fit into there i don't i don't know that i would have given him the, the golden globe nod but know, everybody's drinking at those things anyway so <laughs> yeah. it was his beard he went into it you know bison
0: litter it was, was hidden in that beard of his beard of bees of his so
2: i love that beard of his that deserved the golden globe there should be a category <laughs> for that yeah. best beard it's like my beard they broke my beard <laughs> <You> know, <so. laughs> okay bad joke
0: Anyways, so not sure if you guys yep. noticed, uh this movie was produced by Senior Spielbergo, and Robert Rodriguez was originally going to direct, but he dropped out late in the game, and he was replaced by Martin Campbell. And fun fact, Spielberg actually was originally thinking he was going to direct this one himself. The funny thing is, he had an urge to direct an action-adventure movie. And then, why the fuck was he going to do another Indiana Jones movie? That would have been prime time to do another one. But, no, he didn't do it. Anyways, I don't get it. So, um... Banderas was not the first choice to play Soro. Spielberg thought that honor goes to Tom Cruise. <laughs> what? What? Oh, no. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> Spielberg is like one lucky mofo. He keeps avoiding these mistakes of his throughout his career. And he just gets lucky, lucky, yeah. lucky
2: that these things don't play out to just sink him.
0: You know he's on the Titanic, but for some reason he's like got rubber lining everywhere.
2: That is an odd. I did not know that. That is an odd thing to hear. To throw Tom Cruise into such an obviously you know Hispanic role, and I mean honestly, Antonio Banderas is perfect for this role.
0: But that's not the first choice. But I think I I don't know how far those talks. I don't know how far those talks actually went. I think that was just Spielberg's first obvious choice, right? Because Tom he was doing everything with Tom Cruise at the time. So, yeah, you know, these are loose trivia, so who knows how far this really goes. So, another interesting fact, back in 94, when this film was in its first days of pre-production, instead of Anthony Hopkins, it was Sean Connery who was going to play Diego De La Vega.
1: Oh, uh, you go, uh, you, <laughs> you you go from a Welshman to a Scotsman playing a Mexican <laughs> hero. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Oh, <laughs> <audio. laughs> uh, wow. That would have been a would have been amazing just the thought of Sean Connery doing
2: well. Uh, I mean, Antonio Banderas is no more Hispanic than Sean Connery, so that part doesn't matter at all. <laughs> you know? the funny thing is, is
0: like that's... actually in the reviews for this movie, people were still complaining about the whitewashing with Anthony Hopkins and Catherine Zeta Jones because I think they're both Welsh. She's well, yeah, she, I, yeah, I, I that's right. Hopkins is Welsh too,
1: yeah, Hopkins is Welsh,
0: so they're both complaining that why didn't they cast Mexicans? It's like, well, I'm lucky those guys never saw Star Trek Into Darkness, but anyways, that's
2: okay. Well, to be fair, Americans don't want to watch Mexicans in big-budget mainstream movies either. They can complain about whitewashing all they want. They throw Mexicans in here, it makes $12 at the box office. <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying anything against Mexicans. I'm talking about like people going to movies. They're like, who are all these non-white people in my action movie? Fuck this. They think Antonio Banderas is white, I can promise you. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Except for his name.
0: So, Bill Bergo didn't like the original ending where or it simply stopped Della Vega dying in Helena's arms. So, three months after filming, they filmed the ending that we saw with the fairy tale-type ending, which thinks a bit more appropriate, bringing things more full circle, and I think tonally it fits better as well. As for the character of Zora himself, just in case you guys don't know, the character was created by Johnston McCully back in 1919 in a story called Curse of Capistrano, which was a serialized story. Diego Vega was the original name, and then in later stories, they, the name changed to Della Vega. So while it has been changed slightly through various incarnations, Zorro usually is a nobleman who defends commoners of back against tyrannical rule, and he usually uses his wits and cunning to defeat others. And something that I found evident right in the first act when you talk about it, he takes joy in publicly humiliating that's a staple of the character back all the way since it was created. So uh, very quickly, when this character became popular in 1919, it took off immediately. And then United Artists, right away, in 1920, made the first Zorro movie called The Mark of Zorro. I think that starred Douglas Fairbanks. And then Macaulay, on the side since then, wrote 60 more stories of Zorro until his death in 1958. And ironically... His final story is titled The Mask of Zorro. And finally, mm-hmm. it shouldn't come as a surprise, is uh, that Zorro himself was part of the inspiration for Bob Kane to create Batman. So like Batman, Bruce Wayne is wealthy, just like Zorro, and his everyday persona makes him out to be you know, shallow and foolish to throw off suspicion. And obviously we have seen time and time again Wayne's tragedy starts by his parents getting murdered after watching some form of Zorro, initially the mark of Zorro, And then I think in Batman and Superman, they changed it to Mask of Sorrow, which kind of gave me the inspiration
1: to pick this one for the podcast. So, Gents, quickly, any thoughts on any of the trivia there? Uh, Definitely the correlation to Batman. Like, you can see the theme of just like with Zorro not necessarily needing to be one individual but it's more the image that Zorro represents. It's how the people rally around seeing Zorro and for me like you see that comparisons to Batman and especially when like you you talk about like Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy and also like how you've seen Batman evolve in the comics. Like It's just like the imagery of Batman. So you you can definitely see the correlation between those characters. It's pretty cool to see like how long Zorro has been around for in folklore in the United states i wish there'd been more of it i was there a tv series there was was later on yes yeah yeah okay that's where i was like i remember having some vague recollection of zorro before watching this movie but pretty cool to see the comparisons between those two characters
2: yeah for me um you know obviously johnston mcculley a very spanish mexican sounding name as well (laughs) and andrews you meant you know you brought up christopher nolan's batman which has no tie to Zorro that uh, was um, left out of the Christopher Nolan mythology, which is uh, was an interesting choice on his part there. But, I mean, definitely interesting to see him in very... Popular character going uh, going way back there to the late 19th century, and you know very prolific. I mean, you know certainly not as popular or prolific now. You know his, his popularity's kind of waned in in uh, recent years since these films here. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of neat to see the you know these you know, this type of character weave its way through popular culture. I mean Zorro. It means effectively now Zorro is Batman. I mean that's where that's where Batman comes from. So that's I, I suppose how he'll get to live on into the future, and I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's best that way. It's hard to have a rapier-wielding masked bearded man slice up bad guys and, and quip his way to, to victory.
0: Yeah, but now we get, you know, armored guys with pointed ears slicing open guys' cheeks with kryptonites. So that's okay. We, we did that. We did <laughs> that, we did, one. We, did that one
2: we did that one already.
0: It's still relevant today. That's my point. Anyways, gents, let's get into look to the movie itself. So, the interesting thing about how this movie opens is we get, going back to the Star Wars, you know, um, influences here. We get an actual opening crawl of sorts. I mean, it's not something new or just Star Wars did it. Now this is doing it. It's just something fun where they kind of tell the audience of the Spaniards being pushed out of Mexico and its northern province of California. I like the scene. I like the music here simple it got you right into it and then we can talk about this whole introductory scene with montero's last chance to lure Zorro into a trap and that little action sequence there and you get to see the marietta brothers when they're young let's just talk about this opening here jeff how about you start us off here what, what were your thoughts of this opening scenes here
2: what i kind of written down is the you know this opening scene is kind of some dark shit there's some bad stuff going on here, and it—it it, you know you take it in the context of the whole movie. It, yeah, I don't want to say it necessarily out of place, but uh, things brighten up. But I, I thought the opening here was uh, was very strong, very strong here.
0: Okay, so anything that like really caught your eye or that you really enjoyed is outside of maybe taking it back from its uh, darker. To which point are we going here? I mean, uh, he goes back to this house, so you know, this first whole scene here is sort.
2: You know what, I actually did kind of catch my eye, and and, and you said earlier that it's a very well-shot movie, it looks really good, you know, reflects the budget, and I have to agree with you there. What I thought was really interesting is, if you go back to kind of classic Westerns, right, it's a bit, it's obviously a cliche where, you know, the good guys wear white and the bad guys wear black. But if you watch here, you know, and the movie's very much a class struggle between the common man... And in uh, the upper class, the rich guys, and as opposed to the you know good guys wearing white and the bad guys wearing black, if you watch, like, the, the good guys are all just real drab, neutral color palettes, and the bad guys, as opposed to wearing black, they're, I mean, Zorro's wearing black, so instead of that, all the bad guys, they're all dressed very fancifully, flamboyantly, if you will, very colorful, and they they very much stand out. So it's a very stark contrast, uh, you know, it's, re- it's reflecting their wealth, and I thought that was a really interesting way of portraying that. It might be a little bit on the nose, but, you know, it's the kind of movie we're we're in here, so... That, yeah, that's kind of what struck me visually to this point. It's a good pickup. I don't think
0: that was by accident at all, because as, as I
2: mentioned, no, from the no. beginning,
0: Zorro has been there to really represent the commoners. He was a nobleman himself who turned against his class for the brutal treatment of peasants and commoners, right, his fellow men. that's who Zoro stood up
1: for. Andrew, how about yourself? This opening act, what did you like? Anything you noticed, what you didn't like? I think it was a good setup for the rest of the movie, like the the crawl, by giving the backstory. Like sometimes you want to learn about the backstory before the movie starts. Like it would have been nice in Star Wars to learn about the the politics because I heard that politics is a really good backstory for Star Wars. But for this one, no, I really did appreciate just the, the quick introduction, but I also like just seeing how the public viewed Zoro. Like he was a hero for them. Like they just wanted him to show up. So you saw that affection for the character itself. But like when you talk about it being a little bit dark, it also set up the rest of the movie and the theme for the movie in that there were some serious tones, but it was mixed with a little bit of humor. And that I think was, was a nice little blend so that it appeals to both like the older audience and a younger audience, knowing that throwing a little bit of slapstick and it, it could appeal to everyone. So it showed, as I mentioned, like earlier, a little bit of the '90s style in terms of of action movies, uh, but for me, I thought it was very well done. Like it, it was refreshing to watch a movie where you're pretty sure that like there wasn't any CGI going on. Like these were all practical effects, yeah. and that to me, it's like yeah, certainly it's taking place in uh, in the 19th century. But I like just seeing a, a movie um, and nothing where you're wondering like whether or not it's real. Like everything is the way it is as displayed on screen. So. The introduction of Anthony Hopkins as Zorro, watching it now a little bit older, you kind of get a little chuckle. It's like, oh, there's that Welshman again. Uh, But... uh, (laughs) Goddamn Welshman. Actually, it's when I wrote Chubby Zorro. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and boy does he have a great tan. That must have been an amazing cruise that he just went on. But no, like Anthony Hopkins, I love Anthony Hopkins. Like he's just a phenomenal actor and he plays the part beautifully and it's like you see that affection for the character and so sets up that whole theme of like Zorro doesn't have to be one individual. He is a, an image, he's a symbol to the people. So I really like this opening and it got me hooked right away even after having watched it 10 years plus. It years,
2: gave me know. white, it doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs>
0: matter.
1: Yeah, exactly so no, I agree with
0: both of you guys. I really like this opening. It moves grew- um, and I think what this movie does fairly well, maybe for a couple of spots, is this movie moves very quickly. And this opening act moved very quickly. You weren't bored. It just drew you right in. And there's a fairy tale, operatic romanticism to it that I kind of wrote down and noticed right off the bat. Tonally, that's going to continue throughout the whole movie. Especially, you know, the next scenes there, uh, where they'll be coming up and the ending. I mentioned chubby Zoro, yay. And you get to see here he's true to the character because he's, if you guys notice during these scenes, and and I agree with you, great stunt work, no CGI here. But you see Zorro take pleasure from humiliating his enemies. There's a sense of fun here, uh, which is refreshing because you don't get to see, it's hard to find that balance between serious and humor. You're either going to be going in one direction or the other. And to find the right balance, I I think this movie does find a certain balance, except for maybe a few scenes, which we can talk about. I think they found that balance here where there's a sense of fun. You're being dark, and it's good action sequence, but you're still being true to the original concepts of Zorro. Because, you know, you, you know pokes guys in the ass with a sword and stuff like that. But you do get the branding. So, a more, you know, Batman stealing again from Zorro, so again... How these characters are more interlinked, he does his, you know, three-man, three cuts. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I do want to mention again, I did notice right off the bat the music. And I think the soundtrack for this movie is quite noticeable. It's different. And going back, it still has that romanticism to it, that fairy tale-esque quality to the score. And in case you guys didn't notice, and I didn't mention this before, James Horner formed the score here. What are your guys' thoughts
1: on the score? Did you
0: guys generally enjoy it throughout the movie? Is something you guys noticed or not?
1: Uh, Andrew, how about yourself? It definitely is something that I noticed and I I love like during the opening credits for for most movies, like looking to see who did the soundtrack and being very surprised that it was James Horner who did this. But as soon as you see a name like James Horner, instantly you're suckered into it like, oh, I've got to pay attention to the music. And the music was incredibly well done. I haven't rushed out to buy the soundtrack since, but it it definitely fits the mood and the theme of the movie. So uh, I had a a great time listening to this movie.
2: Uh, I mean, you know, I'm all right with James Horner as a as a conductor. It was certainly appropriate, but it wasn't uh, I wouldn't I wasn't rousing, you know, if that if that kind of makes sense. You know, it was it was good. It was it was good. <laughs> well it, it, but it's part of I don't want to give away but it, it, it's kind of part of not my problems with this with this movie but okay how about we hold on? yeah it, 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 we'll come back to how I feel about it later yeah okay sounds good
0: okay so then now we're going to go to so he goes home De um, La Vega at, at Zorro goes through his layer of fox's open cave I don't know how somebody does not notice that cave even though it seems to be part, his layer seems to be part of his own private acreage like that's probably his land so nobody really goes there all the time uh, and then he goes into his mansion, you see him meet his wife Esperanza, his baby Helena, and he gets ambushed by Montero. You get the fight scene here, she dies. So again, this is a very fairy tale like setup. It's very classic. It's this classic storyline trope. You know, what did you guys think of this whole setup and the MacGuffin? You know, not really the MacGuffin, but he's going to, you know, Montero takes the daughter, puts him in prison. You know, I'm going to let you live instead of kill you so you can suffer. You know, it's not a deep thing. It's very classic, as I mentioned. What did you guys think? Jeff, what did you think of this whole setup here?
2: I, I love the setup. Up, i mean just you know it's the first thing there i mean you know very uh wayne manor-esque with the bat cave underneath his uh, huge mansion and it was cold man i mean he comes along and kills his wife and steals his baby and imprisons him i mean the stakes are raised right from the get-go here this is a bad dude and i loved it i mean i i think that this might have been one of the strongest parts of the film here. I mean, establishing your villain is extremely important in in a swashbuckling adventure. And, you know, in any movie that has to cast a villain, you know, casting that guy is very... Now I'm not talking about casting the, the actor. I'm talking about casting the mold for your villain is extraordinarily important. And I think they... Just did a fantastic job here because he has, you know, he has humanity at the same time as being as being evil. And, and what's, you know, what's more horrible than, you know, this guy watching his his wife die and his and his daughter being kidnapped to be raised by the man he hates and then you know and not even having the, the mercy of dying he has to he has to watch it all happen and and rot away in prison and I mean shit it, it, like I said earlier I mean, there's some dark shit happening here and it you know it's a it's a lot darker than the rest of the movie will kind of play out to be but yeah I thought it was great yeah definitely sets the motivation for the main character and
1: establishing the villain who had just been spared by Zoro. like Zoro could have taken his life Zoro let him live and just said just get of California to turning around and breaking into his house and not like he didn't of course mean to murder his wife but ended up murdering his wife Uh, I think that's called manslaughter and taking his daughter to raise her as his own and to have his mortal enemy watch in suffering from a prison cell like yeah this is some dark stuff and I like how it's a little it's also refreshing how there wasn't much explanation as to how he figured out who he was from what I remember and it's a lot better than it's like oh I watched you show up with this really hot chick on a horse at a party but you had this sad look on your face and I I knew right there that you were Zoro, but I didn't want to say anything like they did in Dark Knight Returns but um Dark Knight Rises sorry I I, I like that like it's it sets the mood it, it sets the tone and it sets the motivations for both characters and it was a, a really well done opening.
0: No, I agree. I think it set the tone and the motivations here very well. You know, this kind of setup, it's funny how you mentioned, Jeff, it's dark and, you know, everything is is set up perfectly here. It's funny, you know, when I grew up in the 80s and I had to be forced to watch Bollywood movies with my parents. This is how every Bollywood movie is set up. (laughs) Every single one. one. The bad guy kills the wife, steals the kid, and the hero's got to grow up and... As another kid or something like that, and they gotta go get their revenge. This is a Bollywood movie. But I mean, Bollywood's been ripping off Hollywood. So Hollywood obviously did it first, and Bollywood's still doing this today. They're still trapped in this, in this trope (laughs) to this day, from what I understand. I will not watch another Bollywood movie as long as I live. Sorry for those who like Bollywood. I don't. No more. <laughs> I had enough. <laughs> I will point out it was funny. I remember uh, Montero saying here today was Zorro, or No, no. Today was Zorro's last ride, and I got a chuckle because yeah. immediately I wrote down. You should have said I got six weeks left to retirement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I did like the sword play here it's something I do appreciate the actors putting it all they must have done some good training here and I'm sure there was some stuntmen involved here I like how they actually got some it's not just some back and forth you know clashes they're actually doing some jabs and getting each other on the shoulders and the arms and they're dropping their arms when they get hit and stuff like that like their stances get affected I thought that was really well done I and mean, I do love here how we talked about how Montero really didn't intend to kill Esperanza it shows that he has some layers that like he actually has feelings for her and that's the reason why he takes one of the reasons why he takes um, the daughter as you mentioned Jeff It shows that he has humanity but I did love how he killed the captain who shot her he just turns around and just stabs him in the belly <laughs> Oh, i, I got to chuckle out. All right, so, gentlemen, Zorro is dead temporarily, 20 years. So let's go 20 years later, and uh, we see the Marietta brothers. So we find out that they're con men. So what did you think of the introduction of these guys, along with the MacGuffin for Alejandro, to wanting to get vengeance on, you know, Captain Love? You can even talk about the name Captain Love. And as Beard of Bees. <laughs> so, Andrew, you go, <laughs> you go first. <laughs>
1: i think just the, the description of that sequence it once again it's another theme for the movie where there is some pretty dark stuff in that opening scene like in that sequence where you get introduced to the brothers joaquin ends up dying the way he dies and what happens to him after he dies and then you contrast that with the humor that is involved in the interactions between the brothers and uh can't remember the the guy's name that was that was with them but i it, it was great and like the villain that's another one that these days it seems like the the villains they aren't as good as they used to be, and this guy, the Captain Love, like he's just a, I don't want to say he's a badass, but he is just he's cutthroat, and he just certainly sets it up and like you want Zoro to kick this guy's ass in the end but he doesn't pull any punches like it it is a villain that is memorable which as I said like is doesn't happen too often these days especially with Marvel movies but I really like this introduction and it shows once again motivation for the character of Zoro like why he wants to become Zoro whether or not it's the right reasons initially like he's out for vengeance for the the death of his brother and I thought this sequence really set that tone as well, well
0: yeah, again, kind of like Batman, but you're doing it in a very quick pace. So you have the motivations for Della Vega. You have the motivations here for Alejandro. You can see, uh, the incarnations of Batman here or Zoro and then Batman took inspiration here. Jeff, so you, uh, your thoughts, your thoughts on the sequence, the introduction to Bandera's Captain Love. Did your heart flutter when you first saw him or heard of his name? What do you think of his hairstyle? <laughs> It didn't bring
2: back memories for you, Jeff. I was actually going to say I, I like the blonde, flowing locks. There, I uh, it was a little bit of flutter. Uh, definitely the kind of the kind of villain you love to hate. You know, you're, yeah. you're, I'm like I can't wait for the moment where Antonio stabs this guy in the balls with his with his. <laughs> Looking forward to the whole thing. Now you know it's a good introduction. I mean Antonio, I mean, shit, he his beard grew a beard in this scene here. It was it's fantastic, and it's he's kind of he comes across Cross is kind of a bumbling moron, and I and that helps his, you know, that helps his character arc, that helps his journey. And they don't need a whole bunch of exposition, just a good, just from a storytelling perspective, good quick scene, you know, establish their place in the universe. There, we got the bad guy who's evil just because he's fucking evil. I mean, we have the main bad guy, and we've seen some of his humanities, uh, you know, he's a bit, he's got some layers, and then you know, this guy's sort of the the tier one henchman, he's just an asshole, and I, I kind of like that sometimes with bad guy, he's just a fu- an asshole, and he he needs to get stabbed throat, and it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to watch. Can't wait for it to happen. I, I thought this was very strong as well. Yeah, because it's interesting here. I mean,
0: you the movie portrays him as a bad guy. Really, in the end, like you see him doing other evil deeds he's on the wrong side and working for the, the main bad guy who's really going to be doing even more evil deeds. But at this point in time in the movie, the audience is just looking at this guy and he's saying, he's just doing his job because Alejandro Joaquin and that other guy, I think his name was Three Finger Jack or Four Finger Jack or something, their con man buddy, they were going to run away and you just shot him. And you even learned that that Jack guy survived. So he didn't go over there and just kill him. And then he shot himself. So I found that kind of interesting. It's like, A movie does it really well to set these guys up as bad, but they're not out of line as of yet.
1: Well, he does cut off his head. That's after the fact. So, yeah, but it's still like, I think that is the difference, right? Like the characters, like the three-finger Jack he dies. Oh, no, he doesn't die. Not here. Then Joaquin shoots himself. And so he could have left it at that. But then he's like, nah, I think we should cut off his head. That basically sets him up as like this guy's just an asshole. No, you're
0: right. Okay, let's move on. So we see Montero return to jail, looking for Zorro. He's come back to California. That's his first motivation is to go see if De La Vega is still alive. What did you guys think of these scenes in the jail here and De La Vega's
2: escape? To be honest, like I was a little bit confused like why like, why they were looking for him in the in the jail here, but it was kind of neat to see that the legend of Zorro had permeated these decades because all of these olds you know, broken, beaten down prisoners are still, you know, they're still rallying around Zorro. Like I'm Zorro, I'm Zorro. And that, you know, again, that's part of, you know, him being a man of the people there, you know, I guess you could say there they, they are all Zorro because he was all of them. So it was kind of a neat, uh, it was kind of a neat scene there, you know, speaking of Epic Beards, Antonio with the, or sorry, Anthony Hopkins with the, uh, with the waist long there was, uh, was pretty cool. You know, uh, you know, this is this is just a sort of establishing us for, for later on, but I thought that was the most interesting part there where everybody sort of rallied as or even though it's been, what, 20 years since the last appearance of the Masked Man.
0: Hmm. I agree completely.
1: Andrew, any thoughts on these scenes here? Very reminiscent of the, the I'm Spartacus moment from Spartacus where they're all just like standing up to protect him. Like you don't know necessarily if they know who he is. But it's protecting Zoro and it was very well done. Similar to Jeff, like I, this, the sequence initially when I watched it, I was like, I don't know quite what's going on. And, and the escape was, was fairly quick, but it shows that the legend still exists. And I, I think that certainly plays into the motivations of De La Vega.
0: Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I love these scenes. Yeah, the best part here is all the crazies. It's interesting how you can interpret it one way, as um, you guys mentioned how they actually know that maybe De La Vega is there and he is Zoro. They're actually crazy, and they think the other interpretation is they all think they're Zoro. because I, <laughs> I love it when the one black in me says, the black guy goes, no, I am Zorro. And then you get this short little scrawny guy saying, you can't be Zorro, you're too tall. <laughs> I was laughing pretty hard. I thought these scenes are great. They were fun. And his escape was not nothing to write home about, but again, You know, it was quick. This movie's moving very fast and I still think it's fun. Adventurous. Tonally, I'm really digging how this movie is moving so far. So now let's move to the formal meet and greet. So we see now here Montero's formal return to the California on the beach in front of all the other Dons. De La Vega wants to assassinate him in front of everybody but he sees Elena, so he stops. And then you also get Montero's speech about the Mexican and Americans ignoring them, the people, and soon they'll be Californians. And at the same time, he insults them. So I actually have a, a couple of questions here. So oh, yeah, actually. So one thing I had here, Andrew, was for you about history here, your main sense of what was happening here. I think you you answered that. You know nothing. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> it's continuing a trend from when yeah. I lived in Calgary. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, Andrew, for, for hey. you knowing <laughs> my god thing. The, the token guy who lives in California. You couldn't get a Mexican to appear, so he just picked a guy who lives <laughs> in kind California. Of
0: guy. <laughs> <laughs> for the Zorro reboot in space, we'll cast Andrew Till. He's from California.
2: (laughs) We'll we'll cast the whitest Canadian we can find.
0: Instead of talking about these scenes here, I mean, it's just setting up, not really the MacGuffin, so it's really kind of delegating MacGuffin is to get reunite with his daughter so he stops the assassination here. We were talking about the the villain before, and he was played by Stuart Wilson, that's the actor, who plays Montero. Maybe, Jeff, you might recognize him. I don't think he's a very prolific actor. The only thing I didn't do in research, the one thing I remember off the top of my head was the bad guy in Lethal Weapon 3. So that's it. So He was the bad guy in Lethal Weapon 3? He was
2: that like ex-cop, cop killer. Oh, fantastic.
0: <laughs> so with him, You're I'm right, sure. he was
2: too, yeah. I concur, he was indeed the bad guy in Lethal Weapon 3. Okay, okay? okay. continue.
0: We, we have settled on this fact, thank you. Yep. Uh, what do you guys think of Stuart Wilson in this movie? Maybe it's a good time to talk about him here. You mentioned how you kind of liked him and he had some layers at the beginning of the movie here. You can just go all the way through without kind of revealing all your thoughts about the movie. What were your thoughts about Stuart Wilson? Andrew, how about you go
1: first? Just doing a little bit of research now as we're talking. Like, I, you'd think with the performance he put in, like, he was a really good villain that I would have expected him to be in more movies, but he doesn't have a very long career. uh, I wouldn't say a long career, but he hasn't appeared in as many films as I expected him to because he was such a solid actor in this. I agree. Yeah, he only
2: has 87 acting credits. I know, it's not very many at all. What are okay. The, the they must all be com- com- this guy <laughs> commercials. He's on weapon, uh, Jeff,
0: Lethal Weapon eighties coming out next month. Come on.
1: <laughs> I bet you he appeared on stage and like what credible actors these days like show up on stage yeah, I'm not, not
0: kidding The Weapon 3, the commercial The Weapon 3, the play, the play.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, No, but I really liked his performance like it, it was I've said my stuff about the, the villain Okay, yeah, you lost you, you
0: lost uh, any rights to talk about Stuart Wilson anymore. so <laughs> <laughs> so Alejandro, along with myself right now, wants more whiskey. He's mourning the loss of his brother with Bart, and De La Vega bumps into him. Uh, they have their little fight scene, and they have a little talk. So what did you think of these initial scenes here? I know they play at four laps, and they're playing at a little bit more light. So Jeff, on the master and the pupils' introduction.
2: Uh, You know what? It was all right. I thought Antonio sort of stole the scenes here you know he kind of brought a good combo of you know charisma humor but still you know totally in over his head you know amateur i mean obviously he's drunk but you know he's playing this scene with uh cockiness and he has absolutely no business going up against zorro even even as he is an old man who just got out of prison so it was it was okay i thought the scene might have been played for a bit more drama as opposed to laughs it's an important moment it's a pivotal moment so i i I don't know i think they think i think they might have got the tone just a little off here Uh, it might have been played for a little a little more seriousness perhaps than eh, slapstick really it seemed anthony Hopkins was a little
1: disinterested like i wanted to talk a little bit more about like his motivations like when he was about to kill montero and then he saw his daughter and that like prevented him from taking that uh, that next step and so i'd liken that to to batman begins although it's a little different with bruce wayne who goes out to to kill what's his face and then you know something happens but no um i I joke but it it was interesting to see this play out because anthony Hopkins, you just seemed like he had given up but i think he played the character well in that regards where like probably all that he could think about for those 20 years in between when he had last seen Montero to when he saw him then was like I just want to kill him like I that's all I wanted to do and here he was like the opportunity that presented itself he wasn't able to do so so we saw hope in this character that Antonio Banderas was playing but um it wasn't as well played out as it could have been like, it was once again like a very quick transition it's like okay I can make this guy my protege Banderas also I think was what's the better of the two but it, it wasn't the most memorable scene in the movie, I'll just say
0: that. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that this scene was very rushed. Again, as I mentioned, the pacing of this movie, you know, it feels like a J.J. J. Abrams movie. It's moving very, very, very fast. I think they could have explored a little bit more here. You know, they could have lingered on some of the moments between the two. I know they have a lot more scenes later in which they talk, but I think they really could have, these initial scenes could have benefited from a little bit of a slower pace. I don't mind that it went a little bit more jokey and slapstick. I agree. It's a little bit more slapstick. Jeff is drunk and he's trying to fight Del Veda, like Alejandro's trying to fight him. But, you know, as you mentioned, you guys mentioned before, the movie's been pretty dark up to this point. Not dark, dark, but dark enough that maybe for a family audience, they need to kind of slow down and lighten the mood a little bit. And I think it's probably why they were playing these scenes the way they were. Whether that's the benefit or detriment to the movie, I mean, that's a, another thing. Although I always get pissed off that they always cut out the Zorro line, like yeah, Zorro?
2: Yeah, that was unfortunate. Yeah,
0: I always wish that they yeah. kept it, because it's just like, you know, all of a sudden he just cuts back and he's like, oh, you're Zoro? <laughs> you know, because now the yeah. next scene is we're back at the lair of the fox. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Lair of the fox, instead of the Bat Because the <laughs> fox <laughs> appropriate. Do you guys like it? You don't like it? <laughs> Andrew.
1: Didn't really think too much of it. Like, I, I did chuckle at the Zorro's Batcave just because it's convenient that no one's seen him ride into that Batcave the, the entire time that he has well, been Zoro. It's Zorro. Not like
2: they have Google Earth in 1889 or whenever it is. Yeah. That's true, but you think they would have put some
1: type of tracking device on that horse of his and then just followed him home.
2: But, like a red scarf that they have to follow or something. Yeah, yeah. and the horse oh, gets blown apart, but the
1: only thing that's left is that little ribbon that's attached to it, and that's how they're able to find the, the lair, because <laughs> only great movies do things like that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's pretty cool. I like the setup of the lair. I didn't think too much of the the name itself, but, uh, but I do like the lair itself.
0: How about his um, initial... Their initial conversations and, and his
1: training i think it was good to, to juxtapose the immaturity of banderas's character versus zorro who is definitely jaded but knows what he's doing and you can see like there's going to be a lot of time before he gets to the point where he can don the uh the, the mask and call himself zorro so it highlights how much of a, a journey this character is going to have to go on and how much work zorro is going to have to put in in order to make banderas believable Zorro but it was uh, I think another well-done moment and I do like all the training scenes that happen in the lair as well
0: Jeff yourself
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love the uh, training montage and some of the stupid like we swing around in the ropes there it's fucking useless shit was <laughs> <laughs> I could have done that. you know once Antonio gets himself cleaned up there and you oh, know I has the uh,
0: news, though I like how Surprised he was when he got his shave, and he looked in the mirror and he gives a little wink. That
2: yeah, was it was a good little that's moment Benderas. there. Uh, that's that's Banderas right there. Absolutely, and that's what I said before. You know, you know, the charm and the humor, he can nail those uh, those pieces very, very easily. That that's his uh, that's his strong point there. With Anthony Hopkins, you know, cleaning himself up. I like those sort of like really effeminate cigarillos that he was was smoking there. (laughs) You know, it's fun. It's a good tone that they're striking here. I don't know that he's able to train this sort of goofy outlaw into being, you know, a swashbuckling warrior. I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe that rope training is a lot more effective than it looks. (laughs) I (laughs) just thought it was silly. Like, I got his ropes all tied up all over the place. And why is he just kind of swinging on him like he's some kind of a handicapped pirate? Doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Cirque du Soleil. This is yeah, like Cirque a... du Soleil is in town, and they're looking for like their you know their diversity quota. In I the told, uh... I told you guys last time I needed a pummel horse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it made more sense. Let's get the damn bumble horse up there. <laughs> No, uh, for me, I actually, I mean, I agree with you guys. It, this, again, we're moving very, very fast here, but I, I did like some of these scenes here in the lair. Uh, one thing I did note down is I love the first order of business was that when Vega went back to his lair, he didn't bother cleaning up or doing anything else. He just stocked up on sicarellos and whiskey. So there's a, lot of <laughs> there's a lot of linking to the audience here. And I, I do... You know, they play off each other really well. I think these guys have some decent chemistry between each other. I love how Della, the guy, just keeps drinking throughout all of these seasons. Yeah. But then, you know, he's like whipping Alejandro on the ass. I mean, is this how Luke is going to train Ray? I mean, because I might look forward to that, right?
2: We're going to have those results up for sure. No doubt about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I do, I do like the concept of the circle of training. I'm sure this is how swordsmen do train eventually is, uh, like as they progress, the circle just keeps going smaller and smaller and smaller. I did like that. But I think on his necklace, you see those, it's like a pendant, but you see all the, it's like that circle of training in a sense. I mean, there's a bunch ah. of and it keeps going smaller. In the middle, there's a, a ruby or a jewel or something like that. Probably signifying oh, nice. that once you master that inner circle, you are Zor. I did like a lot of these scenes here. So, you know, as Alejandro was training, his skill is becoming stronger, and Double Vegas still says, nope, you're not ready. But Alejandro comes very much, you notes, know, pulls a loop from the Empire Strikes Back and goes off half-cocked and wants to steal a horse that looks like the old uh, Tornado. He's a real horse. And you get this scene here where infiltrates, I guess, one of Montero's barns or area. Right? And his, his army is there and uh, he steals a horse. You get a lot of sword play here, a lot of fisticuffs. It's kind of his first test. What did you guys think about all these scenes here? So Andrew, how about yourself?
1: I think when I talked earlier about like this, I think defines like a 90s action movie. This was the moment where it really sunk in. Like just the battle like where he is trying to steal the horse and he's taking on everyone. And the humor that results in the swordplay. Like there are moments where like, oh my God, he's taking them all on. And then he just takes two cannonballs to take on the big guy. And then he fires off a cannon in order to escape. The music and the sound effects play into that balance of action and slapstick humor. I think it was a little too much for me. But I think it also could be a result of how action movies have evolved over the last decade. I think it was fun. It definitely is a little lighter than what we've been used to. But yeah, it I think it exemplifies that theme that is seen throughout the duration of a movie in terms of that balance of... Action, adventure and humor mm-hmm. Jeff, how about yourself
2: yeah i i I mean, let me tell you, Antonio Banderas, ladies and gentlemen, does not go off half cocked He goes off full cocked <laughs> all the way. Let's just clear that up right now, full cocked <laughs> going off here. I really enjoyed this action scene in the barn. I thought this was uh very well choreographed. It's fun, it's exciting and as we've said before you know everything's practical here there there isn't a bunch of cg there and and better you know cg i can handle there's no wire work that you know there's no wire foo here which has plagued movies ever since about this time in film you know yeah, the next year it's the matrix is it not yeah 99 is the matrix and you know the Matrix. It it works right because of the setting, but everybody's doing it even in real world settings, and it and it's totally out of place. So you know it's really refreshing to to see just you know straight up choreographed sword fighting. Yeah, I mean, okay, so he shoots a cannon at a guy, and that's goofy as well. But you know that fits with the tone, and it's you know it's funny, it's exciting. And yeah, I think this part of the movie best, it's striking the exact right balance between all of the elements that it's juggling, which is, you know, humor, action, and still enough seriousness to keep the stakes high enough so that the action is is meaningful.
0: So it's interesting how you talk about it being tonally appropriate. So here we see Zorro, he probably does kill a few people in the sequence, but tonally, you really don't get any sense of that kind of violence. So, what are your thoughts in terms of the way films like this are filmed versus films? uh, You know, we just did Batman versus Superman, but there are other films that show very harsh depictions of violence where heroes are killing bad guys. I mean, do you guys want to talk about any of those total differences between these eras that we're having right now?
2: I think that, you know, Andrew's talked about how this is a very 90s movie, and it's hard to categorize that, but. I think, you know, in in a way that what, you know, what you're saying here, Harry, sort of fits into the 90s-ishness of this film, if I may coin a phrase. There's something about, I mean, I'll say pre-9-11 filmmaking, where it's almost okay to have casual violence in a movie, and for some reason, it doesn't seem to be, you know, emotionally impactful or... You know, you don't worry too much about the collateral damage. You don't don't worry about the body count in Lethal Weapon, you know, as we've already brought up Lethal Weapon. You don't worry about the body count in Commando or Total Recall. It's almost a joke. And maybe that's not necessarily a good thing. But for some reason, you know, once you get out of the 2000s there, post, again, like we'll say, post 9-11, for some reason after that, casual violence is not... Okay anymore, you know you can't just have collateral damage without consequence you know you, you know when you start to rack up the body count, start to think about the consequences now I and mean, this is before this movie's made before those considerations, and I mean is it okay or not I mean it's just how movies were made I mean it's still how movies are made, but it just seems less okay now but Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you bring it up, how the, how the, it just, it feels like it's not a big deal. Like, you know, casual violence, body count, it's okay. It's part of the swashbuckling adventure. There are no more human beings getting killed as, you know, balloons getting popped after the birthday party's over.
0: Well, it's interesting perspective you have there, Jeff. I'd like to challenge you on this pre 9 11 and post 9 11. When we're talking, what I wrote down here during the set piece, and I think it's kind of, consistent throughout the movie this is a pulpy serial romantic fairy tale adventure i mean the key word there is pulpy and what this whole scene here reminded me of and i don't think it's any coincidence whatsoever that spielberg had produced this he had some influence here this whole set piece reminded me of the bar in raiders of the lost ark with when indy met marion and they had the nazis come in and they had that kind of pulpy feel to the action lighthearted, yet serious. It's finding that right balance. And post 9-11, I think we've seen it, whether it's as successfully executed or not, as Pirates of the Caribbean, as Andrew mentioned. That's a swashbuckling adventure where people are getting killed, but it's a pulpy feel. And it's finding that right balance between seriousness and lightheartedness, and going back to that serialized adventure that George Lucas loved in Flash Gordon that Spielberg loves so much that he created Indiana Jones with Lucas. So I think that they've replicated that formula here very well. And I think it can be done even post 9-11, whether that's as popular now with the masses is a different story is something else we can discuss. But what do you, or Jeff, go go ahead. You can
2: have your, your well, no, I I mean, I I mean, that's an interesting perspective. I I think that, I think the consideration towards the, uh, the disposable bad guy you know, needs to be kind of brought up. I mean, it's if you talk about Indiana Jones, I mean obviously the tone of the film is going to be the greatest influence on, you know, if it if it works or not. And and, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's definitely a similar feel to the bar fight in Raiders of the Lost Ark here. You know, Nazis are disposable bad guys and these are just sort of random Mexican flunkies who are who are getting offed. I just think that nowadays, and I say post I'm just drawing the line at that point and it's probably too dramatic to do so. I just I kind of found that sort of seemed that time frame, late nineties, early two thousands, is sort of the separating piece where now it's hard to have the disposable bad guy now. I don't know. It's just really difficult now to just have the the disposable bad guy. Even when they're they're bad, it's you know, lines are blurred now in in the world and that's difficult to do. Yeah, it's like the difference between how stormtroopers used to be and how stormtroopers were in the Force Awakens. Like a
1: bunch of people were like reading the reviews, like, "Oh my God, stormtroopers can actually hit! They're like a badass force." And that's kind of what made stormtroopers fun to begin with. Like they were like soldiers that couldn't hit the backside of a barn. They wore armor that didn't protect them from anything. Like hell, the Ewoks were able to take them out. And it's added that sense of realism to the the movie that. <sighs> For me, like I, the, the word that keeps jumping into my head is the escapism. Like it, It's just you don't think about the character having to kill a bunch of people. You see his craftiness. You see his elusiveness. You just see how he's able to outsmart his opponents, regardless of how dumb they are. It's fun. And that's where a lot of the movies these days, like the more successful movies tend to be the ones that show that gritty realism. Like you take a look at, I bring up Marvel a bunch of times, and I love the Captain America series, but the ones that have been the most successful and people have resonated with are the ones that are the most realistic, like Winter Soldier but sometimes you need a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy that's just a lot of fun and it's just an escape movie. And you don't need to see the good guy kill a bunch of people all the time. And that's what I like about this one is that when the important characters die, they make it fairly obvious that it's an important scene because you see blood and you, see, you actually see the death. Versus this one where it's like you don't need to see Zoro bash people's heads in. He's out there having fun himself. They've just, they've just
0: been tossed aside. You don't really see how they died,
1: in a sense. Yeah, and, and like Zoro's not out there to kill. Like He's out there also to have fun, and that's what <laughs> this sequence all about is all about too. So there is a difference, and um, I do miss it. Like, I think the world needs a little bit of escapism every now and then. And I 100% agree. Escapism
0: is a really good word to use here. Before we move on, I did want to mention this is the first instance where we see... I can't recall if this is a staple in the Zoro character or not, but I do love in this movie the relationship between... Alejandro and his new horse. Yeah. It's a little jokey, played for laughs, but I did chuckle at these scenes here and you see part of that relationship here. Then we get into quickly, I mean, you, you get the profession scene where he, you know, starts to have Selena and they start to have chemistry here. Maybe this is a good point to talk about Catherine Zeta Jones. I mean, she, this is her breakthrough performance in Hollywood. She hadn't really done anything major herself. What did you think of her? In this movie and her chemistry
2: with Vendaris? I thought she was very good here. I really liked her fiery. You can kind of see just sort of the, it's hard to describe, but there's just something burning underneath her eyes there. You know, she was, I thought she was very good. I thought she played this role very strong. The chemistry with Antonio is palpable, and she's not given a whole heck of a lot to do here. And this is the late 90s when we still really aren't seeing very strong female characters in, in film, uh, which is sad to say, but she does as much as she can with the role. You know, she's very, you know, proficient in her action scenes and uh, yeah, the chemistry is great. You know, she's objectified, obviously, as all women are in action, in action films a little bit, but uh, I think she acquits herself very, very well. Heck of a uh, mainstream debut as much as I want to talk about the acting and the the performance, but like, she's just amazingly beautiful.
1: Like it just, (laughs) I remember watching this movie like hot damn, but it also complimented the fact that she was a character that wasn't a damsel in distress. Like she could take care of herself. Like she went toe to toe with Zorro and and nearly won. like this was a person that you weren't going to find being taken advantage of by characters that was going to put herself in a position where she's going to get captured and Zorro is going to have to come rescue her. The chemistry between her and Antonio Banderas was a big part of what made this movie a lot of fun. And I get a big part of why people were really excited to see like a potential franchise come out of this movie, but also why people were so disappointed with the sequel, which we may talk about later. But no, she was fantastic in her big screen debut. And certainly you wanted to see more of the the interplay between her and Banderas and it was a big part of this movie.
0: Well, I agree. Like they had instant chemistry not just in this confession scene, but as they move forward in the movie. They really sold it, both of them together. She did a wonderful job. I mean, you know, I'll be for the first to admit, and not the last, that you know, upon first seeing this, I was like salivating like a pavlov dog the entire movie around she was on screen. But, you know, um, but I agree with you, you guys. She's no damsel in distress. She did a really good job here. There was a fire in her eyes, a fire in her belly. She had this spunk about her in a very similar way that Carrie Fisher had a spunk which he portrayed Princess Leia. So I really enjoyed the character in this movie. So Alejandro goes back to the lair of the fox, uh, and he gets scorned by Devil Digger for feeling or saying, you know, he's not the a thief. Zoro was never a thief, he's a servant of the people. And then you get to then they're gonna go and evade Montero's fortress as royal Spaniards, they're gonna do their little spy stint here to learn his master plan. One piece of trivia I did want to give you guys is, if you guys recall, the one scene here where Hopkins was whipping the candlelight with his whip, and he was taking it out. I'm not sure if you guys know, I mean, there's no CGI in this movie. It was actually Anthony Hopkins doing it himself without a tape. Wow. Doing it by himself. It's a piece of trivia. I mean, it took some practice, but when they filmed this scene, it was all, I think he got three or four in a row before he stopped. When Vanderas or Alejandro came back to the lair, he got them all, one by one, without a tape. one take, without a cut. So it's pretty impressive. I thought you guys might get a kick out of that. So what did you guys think of the party scene here? Like your James Bond infiltration here and finding out plans. And we'll talk about the action sequences here. We can talk about Montero's plan as well here. About the gold and uh, Santa Ana and the mine. Uh, What what do you guys think of all all these scenes here? The party scene and uh, Montero's plan?
1: Well, uh, it's the alter ego. Like, Granted, Banderas' character, he didn't come from an affluent background. He wasn't a rich guy, but it shows that he can play that character and basically play the alter ego of Zorro. For me, I really like that. I, I like the fact that he's playing... Oh, it's the best way of putting it, but it was great to see that introduction because it really starts to show that Zorro's image, Like he'll be able to pull off both the, the Zorro and the, the alter ego Pretty easily, you see more of course the chemistry between him and, and Catherine Zeta Jones. The villain's reveal of his grand master plan to all of the <laughs> all of the the bad guys with Pantera seeing everything that he, he really wants to do. Like I I thought this sequence was was great. Yeah, how yourself?
2: I, I thought the humor here, you know, when the when the plan sort starts to come together, right, where they're they're gonna send him into the party and De La Vega is. You know, saying you know, he's like, you, you got to be a gentleman and, you know, this is going to be your biggest test yet. And Alejandro's like, whatever, man, I got this. And you kind of, you get the, because he's such a sloppy dude, right? Alejandro, he's just a commoner bum and to, to pass him for a nobleman. Uh, so they, you know, they kind of play up. This is going to be the greatest challenge. And obviously they conquer that challenge because he just shows up at the party and he's all, uh, you know, Koif, he's a gentleman there. There's a bit of humor there that you know. We thankfully we don't get the uh, the gentleman training because I think that really would have bogged things down a little bit. (laughs) Although it might have been, it might have been, you know, there would have been some humor there. But but the party and the party itself, you know, there's a couple decent pieces here, but unfortunately, this is where we start to drag a bit. And and the movie's been moving very quickly to this point, but it's also a very long movie for, you know, sort of a, a zippy action swashbuckler. And I think that the party drags a bit. I mean, their dance sequence is very good. Again, the, you know, the, the, the sexual tension, the chemistry is... Very palpable between the between the two, but I think we needed to move past this a little bit quicker.
0: No, I agree. I think this is the one part of the movie that kind of drags a little bit for me. There are elements throughout the whole scene here, uh, scenes here at the party that I did like. You know, I liked how before they went, that uh, is says uh, Montero would never look a circle to the eye because he's a gentleman, so he doesn't even have to. While they're disguising himself, he's just there. <laughs> So I I like that, but I mean it's probably true. Yeah, I can see that, you know, back in the day uh, uh, back in those times so people would not even look service you know, because of the differences in classes. Uh I like some of the flirting scenes here between Alejandro and Helena. And again, I like the later how Montero is uncomfortable. You know, you get you know, there's some flirting at the dinner table, there's the dancing scene, he's getting a little uncomfortable and upset that they were kind of dancing a little too close and erotically. That was kind of interesting for a bad guy—a guy who's, you know, he's—I ra- guess he's raised as his own daughter, and I guess he cared for his mother, so he's considering her as a daughter. But it's interesting, as you said, there is some humanity behind this bad guy, and it's a, its an interesting layer that is woven through this Yeah, we get to the plan where they guess they—they they don't get enough information that night. So um, Montero, I guess uh, Alejandro, as a impersonating a person named Spaniard, presses Montero, and he actually takes him to the gold mine where you learn the master plan. You get a dumb scene here with Three-Finger Jack, and you see the peasants speaking for him. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I thought, again, another reference to Indiana Jones here, you know, with the Temple of
1: Doom. I actually quite enjoyed Three-Finger Jack. It, It was... When you see him, there's that moment like, oh my God, he's going to reveal, like, he's going to recognize Alejandro. He's going to break his cover. I did enjoy this. I felt that the sequence prior to where he revealed his plan to purchase California, and then they're like, well, how is he going to go about doing this? And then you see that he's extracting the gold from his own land, from uh, Santa Ana's land. I like this sequence, and it shows zoro's new motivation for the people like it it's the transition you see banderas and how the transition from like he's doing it for his own personal glory and for revenge but then he sees he sees the mind and he sees people being mistreated and that's the spirit of Zorro. and so you start to see the evolution of him as a character and him starting to really earn that mantle of becoming zoro yeah
0: um
1: exactly so i liked how this played out i did like three finger jack and it was kind of funny at the I wouldn't say it's funny, but when the villain mentions like he chuckles saying it's like that's the second time I've shot that man as he's flown through the air at me. I didn't
0: like that one, But
1: but it just shows that he's just an, an asshole.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and it re reemphasizes what Jeff just said earlier. Like a lot of people now they say it's like you need a villain that you can empathize with, that you understand his motivations. This guy is just a prick. And so like even more so, like you want to see him stab through both balls, not just one ball.
2: <laughs> uh, um So, yeah, no, it it sets up the plot for the rest of the movie.
1: So um, I did enjoy it.
2: I thought Antonio did a good job playing this scene here because he has to, you know, Antonio's got to play the role of Alejandro playing the role of the nobleman, right? Where he where this is, you know, not a big deal. So he's he's got to keep us cool. You know, obviously, he he wants to rescue everybody right away and and can't. I, I really enjoy those scenes in movies, you know, where the hero has to he has to kind of eat it for the greater good, for at least a little longer. You know, he has to watch the suffering, He has to take it in order to be, you know, be most effective. So that's uh, that's cool that they put him they put him through that. Uh, it, this is a neat scene here for that, and I thought he I thought he played it very well. The supervillain Bond plot of mining all of the gold and uh, you know blah 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 is the setup for the action set piece. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just setup. Yeah,
0: yeah. I didn't think too much of these scenes, but I agree with you guys. I did get a chuckle when. Captain Love said, uh, yeah, the second time I shot the man flying through the air, I did literally chuckle about out. Um, so next we get, like, we can just talk very briefly. There's a small little scene between Helena and Della Vega in a stable where she approaches and he's just, uh, attending to a horse there. You know, you get to see a nice little father, you know, daughter moment there. There's a uh, father, myself and two girls. I can, I, I enjoyed seeing Anthony Hopkins' performance here, how he was kind of holding back, you know, tears or revealing himself. It wasn't really straining too much, but I thought it was a nice little subtle performance. How he was just kind of reserved and talking about his, uh, his wife and her mother and things like that. What, what did you guys
1: think of these scenes? Anything of interest for you guys? Anyone can chime in?
0: <laughs> okay, let's move
1: on. I'm trying to, no, no, it, it was, I don't, I'm not sure if it's necessarily a small scene because you can see the heartbreak. Like for him, like he's seeing his daughter that his arch nemesis has raised as his own and he can't tell her about it. Like he so badly wants to be able to reveal the fact that he is her father, but like knows it's not going to work and knows that now is not the time. And it's the first moment he's had to interact with his daughter since he lost her 20 plus years ago. And it's kind of heartbreaking. And you know that how movies play out, like, this probably isn't going to be one of the many times he gets this type of interaction. And you can actually see the chemistry between Anthony Hopkins and Catherine Zeta-Jones in this this sequence. And it's also the moment where she starts, where you can see that she could she'll actually start questioning and truly questioning, like, her her own father. Like, the sequence right afterwards is the the lady who recognizes her in the, the market and says that there's no questioning who her mother was. I really liked this moment, and it, it was sad. And that—that's where it's like having seen the movie prior, of course, and like knowing how it ends. I don't want to say it's difficult to watch. I've seen a lot more sappier sequences, but it, it was a—it was a nice sequence. It was a little slower, but I think it was needed to show the the love he still had for his daughter. And um,
0: I mean, it's planting the seeds for her to start questioning things too. Why I wanted to mention the scene here is like maybe we can talk about Anthony Hopkins. I liked how because you couldn't reveal anything, he, he was very reserved, but you can still feel. <laughs> You can still kind of see the the heartbreak and the strain he had uh, inside because he couldn't reveal the truth at that point. Uh, Jeff, do you agree? Anything here or do you even want to talk about Anthony Hopkins as a whole? We haven't really talked about him too much in this movie. Uh, what are your thoughts on the scene and Anthony Hopkins in general?
2: Yeah, I think that this scene is, is a good example of his performance through the film. I mean, he, he goes from, you know, in the first sequence playing the very, you know, flamboyant Zorro, who's having a good time humiliating his enemies and basically making a game out of, you know, whatever you might want to call it, liberating the the peasants of Mexico, or at least giving the peasants of Mexico a, a warrior to stand for them. And, and he didn't take uh, anything seriously. It was just a game. And now and then he had to pay for that with the life of his uh, wife and effectively the life of his daughter and his own life, sitting away in prison. So now he's a much more reserved man who's, who's paid the price. And he's and Anthony Hopkins is able to pivot there and, and show us that this is a different man now. He plays it very well. Again, just understated it's hard to just portray just in the look on your face like what's going on and and only the really great actors are able to do that and in a pulp movie like this to get the quality of actor you know giving it this much detail is you know is very fine to see so good scene to sort of take as an example there i think
0: no, I agree. I'm glad you... Uh, I, I'm surprised it... I'm not surprised, but I'm glad you guys like this scene. It is not very long. We don't linger here too, really too long here. Andrew, how about yourself, just Anthony Hopkins as a whole throughout this movie?
1: Anthony Hopkins, I joke about it, Like, oh, look, it's the Walshman playing the, the Mexican. Uh, having a, an actor like Anthony Hopkins, and he's certainly one of my favorite actors of all time, he plays this character, I think, perfectly. He's subdued to the point where you can pick up on just the torment that he's been going through. But you could also, the softer side of him, like when she mentions about how like his voice is so soothing, like, that's like one of Anthony Hopkins' fortes. Like, just like when you watch a movie like Silence of the Lambs and just anything that he says is movie gold. Like, Anthony Hopkins, I thought, did a fantastic job in this movie. And this sequence is certainly a small part of it, but it's definitely a perfect demonstration of how he's able to convey that torment that his character has and not being able to reveal himself to his daughter, while also showing that softer side, I thought it was, a, it was a great performance from Anthony Hopkins.
0: When I did the research and I read that Sean Connery was considered for this role, honestly, even though that would have been an interesting take, and I think he would have done an okay job, I think this role really was suited for Hopkins perfectly. I think he, he can bring that royalty to the role as a nobleman and still be, you know, down-to-earth, as a father, sometimes I don't pick that, that up, like that human relationship with Sean Connery as much as I do believe it with Anthony Hopkins. As I said, I can I can see Connery do it. I just think Anthony Hopkins is better suited for a role such as this, and I think he did a wonderful job as Dela Vega, even though he was um, obviously had stunt doubles throughout the film in the action sequences. But I think he did a, a marvelous job. So
2: can- you know they should have cast Chatter? Cage, Danny Trejo. <laughs> <laughs> danny trail
0: <laughs> that would have been amazing oh my god yeah that would have been interesting just um, for
2: ethnic authenticity but anyway continue so yeah
0: so now it's a small scene but i think it'd be it's an interesting one it kind of like almost takes me out of the movie a little bit i'm not sure if you guys agree it's the captain love meets aleandro at the hacienda in his office and he has the jar of maria his joaquin's head there <laughs> What did you guys think of the scene? I'm I'm not a fan of the scene at all. Logistically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If he was that on to him, he would have just taken him out at that moment. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, it's, you know, it's played just to set him up as more of an asshole and and more of a motivation. The audience, in my opinion, doesn't even need it. We know he needs to die. Captain love. You don't need to see Alejandro get more motivation to kill. What what did you guys think of the scene? I'm not a big fan.
1: I think had they removed the element like where you got the sense that he was on to keep saying banderas, um, where he was on to Alejandro. Like if he just displayed and showed off the fact that like I captured this guy and look at his head, I killed this guy. Like I've got his hand. Like it, he's already a dick. Like they don't need to emphasize that more. Like he's got a jar of one of his victims' heads on his. Desk, but you're right. Like a character like that, he wouldn't take any chances. He'd find a way to dispatch of him without without question. So I agree. I don't. I don't think this scene was was needed since the character had already been built up pretty well.
2: Yeah, it's a little over over the top, isn't it? To have his head in a jar there. Uh, it's a, it was an odd choice. I I think I understand the extra push on this bad guy here to make him evil because, you know, Harry, you said earlier, I mean, he was kind of just doing his job when he killed Alejandro's brother, right? I mean, he was just, he was hunting down some criminals and he was, he was doing his duty, even though, you know, he has douchebags stenciled onto his forehead, it does make him a bad guy. So I guess they felt the need to really push him over the top to make him evil. And yeah, uh, maybe you're right. It's an odd choice to do. To, this is their choice, but I guess I understand. But yeah, it's it's an it's a it's an odd one.
0: I agree. I think it, it was not really needed, It should have been on the cutting room floor. I'm taught. I'm torn between asking the question, but I'll go for it because that's just me. <laughs> a Morbid question for you for you oh, gentlemen and uh, no. brothers. Would you guys be taking a swig if that was your brother's head? <laughs> 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 Who wants uh, to answer first? I or depends. Yes.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, moving on.
2: <laughs> I don't. I, yeah, who did you ask? could you ask both, both of you. us, or yeah, anyone could chime in. Yeah, I guess. I yeah, I guess so. I guess so. If it's up. Okay. I guess I'd have to. I guess you'd have to take a swig, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have to take a swig, Andrew?
1: Yeah. Like, how often are you going to say that you were able to take a shot of? I was going to say head juice, but i knowing how Harry was going to go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: not there, uh, but That's the vengeance meant something
1: at the end. I don't know. Yeah, it's sure. Why not? Given the opportunity, if that was presented to me, I may live to regret. I'm like, damn it. I should have taken a swig on that like 10 years later.
0: All right. So now we're going to move into the uh, main action set pieces throughout this third act here. Before we enter, like, as Alejandro actually becomes, or fully dressed, he gets that speech, where he's just thinking of Captain Love, because of the scene because he was used for his brother, and he's just feeling hate, and then, Tela Vega says, you hide it with the mask. So again, very appropriate, I mean, very, these are the qualities, and, uh, story concepts for a lot of superheroes, Batman, how he has to wear a costume to hide his hate so he can do the like right thing. So I did like that scene and then you get Zorro's infiltration to get the map to the mind. And you get, in my opinion, maybe my favorite action set piece in the movie here where this fight between Captain Love, Montero, all the other men here. Amazing s- a sequence here, in my opinion. And You even get the Zorro and Helena scene in the barn, the top and off at the end there too. What did you guys think of this
1: scene as a whole? Great setup, but for me, like the one that was the st- uh, the one that was the highlight for me was the the fight between fight um between Alejandro and Elena, and that's to me, like going back to the one I mentioned about Catherine Zeta Jones, like you shot you saw that she was a character that could hold her own, like she wasn't a damsel in distress. That given an opportunity, she could kick some ass, and she did. And what also I liked is that like I was trying to see like how many of those shots were stunt doubles, and it seemed like both her and Banderas were doing a lot of the work themselves, and I think like minus like the big explosions and the big set pieces where they're going to put the actors at risk I think a large portion of the movie was uh, was done by the actors themselves, minus Anthony Hawkins. And I really liked that. Like you could see the work that they put into it. And it was choreographed very, very well. You saw the flirtation. But for me, what I really liked is that emphasis on that. She is a character that could kick ass and could play a pivotal role in the final sequence and perhaps future movies if given the opportunity. But I liked the sequence. It was a little subdued. You knew that there was going to be a big set, set piece at the end. And it set the tone for the final confrontation. Between um, Captain Love and Zorro. Zorro's infiltration of
0: Montero's uh, fortress to get them out.
2: Yeah, it's. I think, like what Andrew said, I mean, it, it helps to see your actors doing as many stunts as, as possible right it, it helps having sort of those close in shots so it's it's good to see that they're doing a lot of their own their own work here which is great yeah I, you know to be honest at this point i mean just with the tone of the movie i think it's it's having trouble now kind of carrying itself through the runtime to you know just you know unfortunately i'm, I'm getting a little bit exhausted at this point with the movie i, I want you know the rousing climax and and it's just it's just taking too fucking long to get there.
0: Hmm. So maybe this scene should have appeared earlier in the
2: film. Well, maybe it should have appeared earlier or, I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, this, this specifically should have been, I mean, this obviously can't be left on the cutting room floor, but it's not tight enough. So I'm just, you know, I'm kind of getting exhausted and that's sort of the problem with action movies is you got to be really careful about your runtime because, you know, once you start getting into the end, you know, to the, you know, and then well into the third act, I mean, it's got to be paced properly, or uh, I just want things to kind of come to an end here. As Kramer said, sometimes enough is enough, and you just want to get some sleep.
0: <laughs> well, uh, great quote. Great quote. Uh, it's very obscure. I'm not sure if it's entirely appropriate. I had a, a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful time with this action set piece. The <laughs> first thing I wrote down here was the flaming Z. Just like Batman, somehow these guys find the time that these guys can light something on fire to alert their presence. They're coming back. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> Nolan must have taken a, a cue from this movie. But I mean, the stunts here were amazing. And you get parallel bars on the tree. Yeah. Doing all the work on the tree. It's like Batman, eat your heart out. I also noted I mean, the, the stunts were amazing. The sword fighting was amazing. I want to give you guys a little trivia here. The guy who did some, most of the choreographing here, and you guys should recognize this name, is Bob Anderson. And I believe that name is correct from research. I didn't write it down, but this was something that I remembered reading before. He's the guy who did the, the lightsaber choreographing on the original trilogy. Uh, for oh, okay. And he said that the greatest student he had, mainly because he was given the most time to practice, was Banderas, In terms of learning how to sword fight and catching on that quickly. And then that wasn't enough for Banderas, he actually practiced with the Spanish Olympic fencing team and sword team Jeez. to get wow. this good, and it shows. Because except for some of the swinging stunts, I think, and some of the flipping stunts, and obviously the parallel bars, and we'll get into the horse chase, where obviously it's a stunt man doing some of that work, he did everything here. He was—it's all him. It's all Banderas. So I thought, uh, wow. thought that was interesting to point out. I also wanted to point out the music here. The music really kicks into high gear here. Very unique, very appropriate. I loved it. And then I won't touch on it further, but yeah, Zoro versus Wayne and the chemistry. It's a funny moment. Um, well, even though as the dress is falling, before it falls, I just love Banderas' face. Like he's just kind of like, <laughs> amused and waiting for it to drop. You get that little smirk. He's like, happy with the work he is about to accomplish. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So I love this scene altogether. One of the highlights of the week for me. And then we get into the horse chase. Now, this is maybe something, Jeff, where you're saying you maybe need the movie to kind of wrap itself up. Uh, we get the horse chase here. Jeff, how about you start here? What were your thoughts on, on the horse chase, as, uh, as horse,
2: chase well, horse chase? Yeah, as far as the horse chase and, and, you know, in the previous sequence here, I mean, again, like... You know, the action's all very well choreographed. And I mean, I didn't mind the horse chase at all. Everything looks pretty good. Again, it's not a bunch of CG. It's not a bunch of wire foo. And I greatly appreciate the, you know, the filmmaking skill that it takes to choreograph this, to shoot this kind of stuff. It it all looks great. It just, for whatever reason, some of the emotional significance is starting to wear off for me. And and that hurts you know the action it's just the you know the action fatigue, so I think what sucks is we get some really good action set pieces here that you know that don't carry the excitement like the excitement comes with the emotional weight of it i i I think along with you know the actual choreography itself and and some of that's pulled back because I'm looking at the I'm looking at my watch a little bit. Yeah, I I think echoing Jeff's comments, like it it gets to the point where it's a little,
1: I don't want to say, well, it is a little repetitive where you've kind of seen it. And like, you've been given a glimpse of what the final uh, conflict's going to be about. Like, you know about the mine, you know about the conflict, like something's going to happen between Zorro and Captain Love. And I think you just want to get to that point. Like, I I think the sequence that was needed amongst this this last group of, of sequences is the one between... Uh, Alejandro and Elena. I think that one they absolutely have to have in the movie. But the rest of it, it could have been compacted. Like I, I don't think it necessarily needed to be in there. I think it may have been a little bit of filler just to get some runtime. But ultimately, in the end, you're kind of like, okay, I'm like I want to see things explode. Let's just get to that point.
0: So I mean, like I mean the horse chase. I mean, I, I think maybe it could have been edited down, or maybe even taken away altogether. But because it's there, I mean, I'm still having a fun time here. I'm still going along with it. I'm just admiring all. Stuff And it's so refreshing to see, as you said, Jeff, the wire food. It's a real stuntman doing the work, and then you get close-ups of the closer-up action with Banderas. And it's just something we don't see a lot these days. And I really like it, and I even like the how it's funny and lighthearted. Again, getting the relationship still between Alejandro and his horse, how he's just taking off without him. And I even love the lash on. I, I literally laughed out loud is when near the end of this chase, the bad guy turns around and sees three horses who are supposed to have his other army guys, uh, soldiers on them, and they're just running, and there's nobody on there. So, the horses are just galloping behind them, you know, without anyone riding the horses, because Zoro took them all. I thought that was a, a real fun scene, but I think mean, that's just me. Uh, but we can move on. So, again, very quick scene before the last major action set piece, uh, to wrap it up. See De La Vega reveal himself to Elena in front of Montero. What did you think of how this uh, was, uh, resolved? Not really resolved, but how he introduced himself and in the setup and elena rescues him and stuff um i thought personally for myself it was a bit sloppy because maybe i agree with you guys the other movie is starting to get long and they focus some of the attention on the action set pieces that we just talked about they kind of rushed the scene a little bit uh, do you guys agree uh jeff publish yourself
2: yeah i, I think I, I i have to agree um you know again i think that you know, as we get sort of deeper into the third act here, I don't wanna say I mean, things aren't falling apart. I mean they still have a handle on, on the story and I, I think that, you know, the characters, you know, emotional through lines are still, you know, we're not losing any we're not dropping any threads here, but yeah, I don't know. It's I don't wanna I don't wanna echo Andrew's sentiment that I wanna to start to she see shit blow up, but <laughs> <laughs> but I do I do wanna start this isn't a twenty minute sequence though. This is for me like three, four minutes long. No, you're right about that. Yeah, it's okay. I, I just need to start to know that we're getting to, to where we're going here. I, I don't know. I felt it
1: was rushed, certainly, to set up Elena taking the side of Alejandro and De La Vega. Like, I think that's where it needed more time. Like I think it would have been more impactful had she realized this. like As she went out to the mine, she saw all the people who were, being, who were about to get blown up. And she was able to make a decision on her own versus like being kind of influenced by the fact that like she realized that that's her dad or found out that that was her father. So I think it was just that setup and it was a little rushed for my liking. Like It kind of spoiled the reveal. Like Had she found out like as he was dying, I think that could have been certainly a lot more emotional. That's not to say I should be writing movies by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But I think given the impact that this sequence did have, more time could have been spent
0: on it. I'm, I'm pretty much in complete agreement with you guys. I think it, unfortunately, some of the emotional weight from these scenes here should have, as rushed, because the movie's long and they focus a little bit too much on the action before. Even though I liked most of the stuff that just came before, I think they could have shaved some of that down a little bit to focus a little bit more here, done something slightly differently. Let's get to the last action set piece here at the mine. You guys know what happens, good guys versus bad guys, playing the flame, freeing the slaves. The guys win. Of course, Delavega dies from his injuries. Andrew, your thoughts?
1: Fun last sequence. Like it was great to see the two sets of characters being able to face off against each other. Like it wasn't something that was quick. Like it, there was emotional weight to both of those fights. I found like the way the characters, how they died, was certainly pretty cool. I liked how like when you see. The fuse being lit for them to blow up the mine. It wasn't one of those where they waited to the last second and thing blew up, but they actually stopped it when they realized that they were going to lose the gold. Like there was so much to this last sequence that I, I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, it was a great conclusion to the to the movie. Elena playing a big part of it. It's certainly nice to see. I think it's that transition from damsel in distress to female actress and character who can who can hold her own. So for me, I really, really enjoyed this last sequence. Like this was something I was looking forward to. I think looking back on like viewing this now after 10 years, like the reason I say that certain sequences may have dragged on a little bit longer, I didn't really want to see the horse chase too much is because I knew that this last sequence was coming. and Like I just wanted to get to this point because it was a lot of fun. But I thought it was really well done. And not necessarily a full conclusion, but uh, certainly a, a great last action sequence to this movie.
2: I think it played out uh, very well. It was nice to see that Antonio's earlier rope work in the Batcave uh, <laughs> finally paid off. Yeah, it, actually saved them it saved him at the end there. So it's, it's good to see the payoff there. Good sword work. Again, I mean, again, as uh, consistent throughout the movie, you know, the bad guys got their comeuppance and the good guys. You know, were able to resolve their their storylines. Unfortunately, poor Anthony Hopkins's uh, old heart gave out, or whatever happened to him. How did? Why did he die? He was shot. Did he get stabbed? I don't. He was shot.
0: Oh, he was shot. Yeah. Um, he has, You know, he didn't give up the
2: will to live. Don't worry. Oh uh, yeah, it was a broken heart. They're not quite sure. Yeah, it was a broken but... heart. Broken with the bullet, <laughs> uh, and the pain of a long life lived as some kind of English. Welsh Mexican, he died as he lived. <laughs> Confused, actually, you know, not not to make not to poke too much fun, but it worked. I mean, again, it, it was unfortunately just long coming, and that hurts it a, a little bit. But uh, well choreographed, big action set piece. I mean, as we said before, the you know the movie's budget comes to bear. It's nice to see when a when they spend a bunch of money on a movie, and it actually looks like it was spent properly. Mm-hmm. You know, it it looked. Really, really good.
0: No, it did. And I love, again, talking about another, like Martin Campbell, we haven't really talked about the direction, but we we kind of have in a roundabout way. He sets up these great fighting shots. So the swordplay, you get to have these wide angle shots where you see both of the combatants being able to fight and it's not close cuts and uh, you get to see both actors doing everything. You see their full movements and you see the clashes. And I really like the direction here for the action set pieces. Yeah, I love how you get even wide shots of the mine you see Zoro running at the top. I love all the things that he's on like these um, water like I can't remember turbines, water t- wood turbines to move the water and the gears and all the stuff on the ladders. I love the whole set here he and great stuff work and I love it even when he gets on that shovel and he's going all the way down, sliding all the way down the hill. Jason Captain love but these are really really great action scenes here. Good deaths for each of the bad guys, both Montero and Captain Love. I, I loved how both of them died. Even when Montero and the wagon fall on the gold and Captain Love, you see the mannequin bodies from that uh, impact (laughs) fall to the ground. You usually don't get to see that often, and I always enjoy seeing the bodies because maybe it's the PAA's like scared of showing uh, dangling bodies fall. You never see impacts when they fall down, and you see these bodies actually fall, uh, even though they're mannequins. I love that scene, and I wanted to point out. I did write this down. I love the great explosion. It was so good that it became sentient, a cat uh courage But though I didn't like the end how Zoro unmasked himself. I don't mind that he unmasked himself in front of Captain Love, but then he just walking with everybody.
2: Just kinda like Andy did Well, I like the dr- I like the how he did it so dramatically though, where he just like rips it off and his fucking hair's flying out all over the place and it, you know, it was a scene they spoiled in the trailers, but I thought he did it in fantastic fashion. No.
1: No, no, he did. I, it's not as if it was Go ahead, Andrew. I understand what you're saying, Harry, but it's not like a time period where all of a sudden all the slaves like whip out their iPhones and take pictures of them, or no one's going to necessarily be able to identify him with any particular individual that they're aware of. And I, I yeah, it was done for dramatic flair, but I, I didn't think too much of it.
0: I just didn't like him walking with the commoners unmasked. That's all I'm saying. I did enjoy the whole, the whole ending here. Uh, even though it was a bit cliche, you know, the mentor dies in a very fairy tale like method, he puts the hands together and then just a time guy. So, you know, you see that in the movie, all these movies a hundred times over, and then the movie ends like literally as this door is closing, like a fairy tale book. When you see Alejandro and Elena in the future, probably married, and they have a child of their own, and you get that kind of fairy tale music to close out the movie, and that's it. So, gentlemen, that's the end of The Mask of Zorro. Any final comments or interesting thoughts you guys have?
1: I'm definitely glad that they reshot the ending. Like when you described how the ending was originally supposed to be versus like how it actually was in the movie. I'm glad they reshot it because it really emphasizes the the passing of the torch. The notion that Zorro doesn't have to be one man. That it's the image, the symbol that lives on with the people. And that you, you get a sense that Joaquin is Alejandro's son is eventually going to take up the mantle of being Zorro himself, and that's just going to it's going to live on within the family history. So I like that last little sequence. And of course, it's a great setup for a sequel. Whether or not the sequel would be a success is certainly one to discuss. It was definitely not a success, and I remember being thoroughly disappointed with it. Uh, but for me, I really like that ending. Jeff, yourself?
2: No, I, I think that... Well... I mean, are we, are we given final thoughts here or just just talk about the ending or any other points of the movie you kind of want to talk about before you give your final general thoughts? I mean, the ending was appropriate. It's obviously the, you know, the story, it's, well, it's literally the storybook ending. As you said, you see the sort of the, you know, the door closing there. You know, it's fine. A little bit over the top where we have to jump, say 10 months into the future where they've got the baby and, you know, we see the parallel to the start where, you know, where, uh, with De La Vega and his, uh, and his family. So, you know, kind of comes full circle where, with the realization of that dream isn't destroyed. So it, it's appropriate, if not very interesting. It's emotionally, I don't, it's not emotionally unsatisfying. It's just, it's kind of there. You know, it's well, what it, they were going to totally do. It fits for the genre. It, it, it
0: fits. See, the one thing is about this movie, it's not trying to be something that it isn't. You know, a lot of action movies or superhero movies are trying to, be about something. This is just in a pulpy, serialistic, fairy tale like escapism
2: movie. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what I think is, well. interesting. yeah, I think what's interesting though is that of any action movie that maybe could have been about could have been more. It might have been this one. Huh. Like that's well, ironic. Well, how so? Like you say. Well, I mean, I think that the class struggle is very relevant today in, in, you know, even through the late nineties into today. I mean, with superhero, like, you know, we're just talking about superhero movies cause you brought it up in even a lot of action movies, the subject matter isn't relevant and they, they try to do different things to make it relevant. I mean, I remember when, maybe this isn't a good example, but what, what the fuck I remember when bad boys two came out oh, boy. and, you know, and bad boys was just, you know, was a goofy action movie didn't mean anything it was a fun watch Shit blew up and some you know cool camera work and some one-liners like like any you know sort of action movie of the day and bad boys 2 came out and it was it was much later on and you know action movies that i feel had evolved past that yet it still was about the war on drugs and like that's what like what a joke for a movie to be about an actually movie to be about the war on drugs in the 21st century is silly. It's ridiculous, but it was you know it was trying to be about that you know. And superhero movies, whether it's Batman or Superman in their various iterations, or the Marvel movies, uh, or, you know, originally when the when superhero movies or superhero comic books were around, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, you know, street crime and the war on drugs were very common, relevant problems. And today. Those 10, those aren't real problems anymore. If you look at statistics, crimes way down in major cities and like violent crimes way down. Sure, we see all of it on the news and stuff, but overall, it's not, you know, there aren't big problems, right? So it's hard for those characters to, to have relevance because of what they were originally about. This has changed now. So now they're different. And consequently those it's hard to make those moves about anything. But you get to Zorro and if you're talking about class struggle in a capitalist society again where you know where the where wealth is is continuously being consolidated upwards. Yeah, I think that this is something that could actually be a lot more relevant than uh, than it was made out to be. So I don't know. That's just uh that's just kinda you know, thought that it, that had occurred to me.
0: See, the interesting thing here is is I mean well, I agree with you. I think maybe Zorro could use a reboot and tackle some of that subject matter into some more depth for a movie that could take it that little more seriously with today's audience. But back then, or even now, I mean, Indiana Jones really wasn't about anything. It was just a character who was thrown into period set pieces and had a MacGuffin based around that specific period of time and social setting that he found himself in. It was just pure escapism. And to me, this is what Zorro was. He's just there during this you know, war of independence where Mexicans were struggling. California was struggling to find freedom. Mexicans were uh, struggling to find freedom from their the oppressors, whoever it it was at the time. And Zorro was just a man of the people saving them. It's nothing more than that. And it doesn't have to be more than that. And I actually refreshed to see a movie such as that. You don't see a lot of movies done well. There are movies out there that are like this that have nothing, nothing to say, but aren't done well. This is just as Andrew said, pure escapism, and it's a pulpy, serialistic adventure like Indiana Jones was. It doesn't really have to be about something. I mean, Andrew, what are your thoughts
1: here on that? Well, I know they're they're actually rebooting it.
2: Uh, when I aren't they rebooting everything though? I mean, who get? I mean, of course. Of course they are. They are but i think it's a good opportunity that harry mentions
1: that they can make it relevant like what i really like about the mask of zorro is that is it should be seen as a one off movie where you can just watch it as escapism to see a hero as a period piece like of course of course uh, like zorro's got like a huge backstory. but for me who's it's going
2: to play up channing tatum is that who's going to be in the reading, in Unfortunately. no 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 it's gonna,
0: it's going to be couple <laughs> trust me gumberbum plays gil whitewhite he'll whitewash, anybody, he'll whitewash <laughs> anybody out of their appropriate roles Oh. Or Johnny Depp. Number no. A- right. <laughs> no, no, so no. You're missing the obvious. The cage.
1: Oh you can God. do anything. Avery Brooks. Uh, no. no. And for me, what I enjoy, that would be uh, but, ridiculous.
0: But he's black. Yeah, but. I want Mad Mel to be. Yeah, Mad Mel. There you go. <laughs>
1: No, I I like this movie for what it is. Like it doesn't pretend to be anything more than what it is. And it is a pure escape action comedy that like when I, when you guys first announced that this was going to be the next movie, I was excited to to rewatch something that I know I'd watched a few times, 10, 15 years ago. But after watching it, I was really happy that you guys had picked it because I really had a lot of fun. And it was one of those that there haven't been many movies recently where you can just sit down and, for the most part like every aspect of it is enjoyable and like it's a great popcorn flick that has great acting great action sequences but for me it was the practical effects and the for the most part fast paced aspect of it that made it very very enjoyable and yeah you can do a lot more with the oval character like it, he could be a character that's like better fit uh a better fit for like a Netflix series that ha- allows an opportunity to create more depth to the character but for this it was yeah, I enjoyed it for what it was. That'd
0: be interesting. I I could see Zorro be a, a Netflix series, ten episodes, a few seasons long. I think that could be that could work if they talk about certain, you know, about about as Jeff talked about, like class struggle, yeah, independence.
2: That is an interesting idea, and you know, the, I mean, obviously the uh, the best TV right now is happening on those sort of shorter form series, whether it's on Netflix or HBO or AMC. Yeah, that that could work. That that'd be. That'd be pretty cool. I'd tune in. So, gentlemen, how about
0: we wrap things up with our recommendations? Jeff, as you have kindly done so, I will give you the last word. I'll pay it forward and let you chime in last. Andrew, how about you start first? Your final thoughts on The Mask of Zorro, and do you recommend... Do you think modern audiences today would actually like this new generation of moviegoers? would they
1: enjoy it? Do you think that's something they could watch and get through? How I've talked so glowingly about this movie, like, yeah, there are some gripes that you can have about it, but I would absolutely recommend this uh, to anyone who is interested in watching a, a fun popcorn action comedy. For me, I think modern audiences would definitely take great pleasure in watching this movie because I think given the success of a movie like Mad Max, which would be an amazing movie to talk about since I can't stop talking about that movie and seeing how practical effects, yes, there's a lot of effects in it, but for the most part, it, it was shot practically. I think people are starving to see these types of movies where it isn't such a reliance upon special effects and there aren't many movies that take place during this time period anymore like you had the the western period during the the 50s and 60s but we don't see many of those movies these days like i think they i just saw a trailer released for the magnificent 7 don't think it needs a remake but i think it's great to see more of those, those time period movies coming back and for me, Mask of Zoro was fun. Like, it's something very different from what people are getting these days. It's not your typical superhero. And for me, it's like, it's two hours of fun. So I, I would recommend this to anyone who's interested in watching movies like this.
0: It's good. Yeah. For me, watching this movie was like, I needed it so badly. It was like rinsing out the bad taste that was Batman and Robin with Zorro mouthwash. My mouth felt clean. <laughs>
2: Nothing like some Antonio Banderas in your mouth to... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I knew I was walking into that one. Totally agree. <laughs> is
0: that, is that, no.
2: No. No. <laughs> no, I
0: uh, highly recommend this movie. It, it was a lot of fun. Uh, as you guys talked about, we've yeah, talked about Nauseam already. The Great stunt work, practical effects. The budget is clearly you know paid off in spades here. The acting, the directing. It was just a fun movie all around, and even though it's not a deep movie, it fits in the genre of pulpy, serialistic escapism, and it really reminded me, like, I remember when when I watched this movie, I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I've had this kind of sense of lighthearted fun that was balanced, serious action with lightheartedness and humor since I saw Indiana Jones and the Temple. And that's the kind of joy I took out of it, and still, I still feel that way today. Would modern audiences buy this movie and get engrossed? I would sure like to think so. I think modern audiences would like to see a movie that's balanced pretty effectively here in contrast to some serious and dark, pretty action movies that they're, you know, being forced to watch constantly. I think Pirates of the Caribbean is kind of proof that if you can find a balance of humor and action and well-made, uh, a well-made movie, people will flock for a few years to see it. I think Zoro is also overdue for another movie. And I guess a it reboot, it'd be sad to see is not fit the role. Maybe he can be a mentor this time, just like Luke, you know, Mark Hamill is doing for Luke. So maybe something on the cards in the future. Maybe it'd be nice to see. I had a lot of fun. And I really think it's a rare antiquity as well, because you don't see a lot of movies like this. that really gets the formula and that chemistry at its heart of the movie really bright. To me, this movie was just pure joy, by
2: I mean I agree with a lot of what you guys have said. It's certainly I think it's a very good example of the genre. It is fun and uh, you know lighthearted adventure movie and those those are rare. So maybe just by that criteria alone it maybe it is a rare antiquity because that isn't pulled off very well. I mean the practical effects, the practical stunts. I mean we we get the Fast and Furious, what are we up to Fast and Furious 84 now and and they're flying across overpasses and jumping it it just doesn't it's just kind of silly in the wrong way and this is
0: you know trying to really be doing like you know a car like jumping from like space shuttle to space shuttle in a car in space or yeah or if jj abrams directs it will be planet to planet planet to planet
2: but it's not but not even in a car like Free fall like that. I'm pretty sure Vin Diesel like jumps across. I haven't seen the latest Fast and Furious. Uh, I'm pretty sure he jumps across an overpass to catch somebody at 100 miles an hour, which would shatter every bone in their But I mean, you know, not to get into the logistics of it, but that stuff is just—it's so ridiculous. And this is refreshing in that in that sense, where other than the cannonball stuff, everything is you know, reasonably possible in physical reality, which is refreshing to see. Antonio's sword work was great. The performances here are, for the most part, very, very good. However, it does run long and that's a problem with this type of movie. It's isn't; able to sustain itself. You know, two hours and 16 minutes, I think it runs about 20 minutes too long. And, you know, if you watch, like, let's say, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, for example, which I think is probably similar runtime, but the characters there are 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 more endearing and the stakes are a little bit higher, even though it's still just a fun adventure movie, I'm more engaged there. There's a barrier between me and the engagement of this because it's so cartoonish. I think that it would have benefited from a better score. I know you guys talked about the score and how much you liked it. I thought it was serviceable, but not didn't elevate the film. It just played along with it. And I was disappointed in some of the blandness. Uh, blandness isn't the right word. I, I like Martin Campbell a lot as a director. I mean, he's he's made a couple of good movies. He's made a couple of turds as well. I don't think he elevated stylistically enough here. You know, when he brought Bond back, he brought Bond back twice, like with GoldenEye and with Casino Royale. And those movies are, you know, they're stylistically well-made and those are... the He elevated... The subject matter in those films and here he didn't quite get there for some reason it's really surprising so i don't know i mean a modern audience is going to go in for this i don't have a fucking clue man i mean if if fast and the furious is making 800 billion dollars the box office for being as ridiculous as it is i don't see how something like this could possibly have a place and that's that's unfortunate and i wish it, it was better because if it was better maybe so but, no, I don't think anybody's going to really care for this now. And I, I recommend it, but it's not a strong recommendation on my part. It's it's kind of a, a a mid-level recommendation. There you go. All
0: right. Well, that does it for today's show, episode 18, The Mask of Zoro. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much for attending today. Jeff, can you please enlighten us what you have in store for us next?
2: Yeah, we are going to heretofore undiscovered and unexamined eras in... Uh, rare antiquities we are going all the way back to 1950 nice for the film noir classic sunset boulevard sunset boulevard interesting okay i've never seen it
0: all right well you're in for a treat my friend well sounds good i can't wait that should be should be a fun one gentlemen thank you very much andrew thank you for joining us today i know we took you away from game seven of the hawks and blues
1: i'm pretty sure the flames beat the panthers tonight so
2: it's okay it's fine (laughs) and jeff pleasure as always we'll see you next time all right buddy we'll see you on the flip side andrew thanks for coming on the show man thanks again for having me guys all right you guys take it easy you too here